Book 5, Chapter 5, Part 2 of the History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of the Inquisition of Spain, Volume 2, by Henry Charles Lee. Book 5, Resources. Chapter 5, Part 2, Finances. Worse was to come in the revolutionary times which followed. Napoleon, on his arrival at Madrid, December 4, 1808, issued a decree abolishing the Inquisition and confiscating its property to the crown, and this, of course, was enforced wherever the French armies penetrated. On the other hand, the Cortes of Cadiz had learned, from the example of the Inquisition, that useless benefices were a financial resource, and one of their earliest acts was a decree of December 1, 1810, forbidding the nomination of incumbents to all prebends, raciones, and benefices, vacant or falling vacant, except magistral, doctoral, lectoral, and penitentiary prebends, or benefices having cure of souls, under which the suppressed canonries were made to contribute to the War of Independence. The Holy Office was virtually extinct when it was suppressed by the Cortes in 1813, and we shall see hereafter how painful was the resuscitation of its finances under the Restoration. The financial organization of the Inquisition at first was simple and even crude. The receiver of confiscations, or treasurer, was a royal official. Ferdinand always speaks of him as mi receptor, and it was the king who issued commissions to all the officials on the financial side of the tribunals, the receiver, the auditor, and the judge of confiscations, although, after the incorporation of the prebends, the inquisitor-general added powers to administer the revenues from ecclesiastical sources, as this was his exclusive province under papal briefs. When Ferdinand died, January 23, 1516, it is not surprising that difficulties were thrown in the way of the receivers, on the ground that their commissions expired with him. To meet this, letters were issued to them, in the name of Queen Juana, February 28th and March 4th, instructing them that they were still in office, with full authority to make collections and to pay salaries and expenses. By the time of the resignation of Charles V, the system had become so firmly established that no questions seemed to have arisen, although probably with each new monarch commissions were renewed. The office was rightly considered to be one of much importance, especially in the early period of large confiscations. In 1486, the receiver figures in the Saragossa payroll for a salary of 3,000 sueldos to 4,000 for the inquisitors while in those of Medina del Campo and Jaén he has 80,000 maravedis to 60,000 for the inquisitors. In 1515, the receiver and the inquisitor in Sicily both received 300 ducats. The receiver necessarily required assistance and agents, as the properties under his charge were scattered throughout his district. At first these were paid by the fisc, but Jiménez, in his reform of 1516, required receivers to pay for them out of their salary of 60,000 maravedis, an economy of doubtful wisdom. In time, the comparative importance of the receiver diminished, and in the middle of the 18th century, we find him, or treasurer as he is then called, 
rated at four hundred ducats, while the inquisitors and fiscal have eight hundred. At times there were distinct receivers for the confiscations and for the fines, penances, and rehabilitations, but usually one sufficed, though the accounts were kept separate. The receiver was required, by the instructions of 1498, to give satisfactory bonds to the amount of 300,000 maravedis. A regulation of 1579 prescribed that these bonds were to be renewed every three years, and that, when one of the bondsmen died, he was to be replaced at once, under pain of major excommunication, la toe sententioe, but the frequency with which this rule was enunciated indicates how difficult was its enforcement. While the power of the receiver in making collections was almost boundless, in disbursements he was prudently limited. An instruction of Desa, in 1504, requires the auditors not to pass in the accounts any item for which the receiver could not exhibit an order from the king, the inquisitor-general, the suprema, or the judge of confiscations in matters adjudicated by him. In Aragon, the accounts were audited by the maestre racional, or auditor-general of the kingdom, and in Castile, by the auditor of the suprema, after which they are submitted to Ferdinand, who examined them minutely and decided as to the items disallowed by the auditors. All this, as we have seen, passed into the hands of the Suprema, which exercised the most careful watchfulness over all gastos extraordinarios, or expenditures other than the regular payment of salaries and the like. Thus, in 1645, Martin Pretel, the treasurer of Toledo, paid out, on orders of the inquisitors, one hundred ninety and one-half reales for repairs to a house occupied by one of them, and one hundred sixteen reales for repairs to the prison. The auditor refused to pass these trivial outlays, and it was not until 1654 that the Suprema allowed them, with a caution that in future the cartas acordadas must be observed. The utmost precision and minuteness were exacted, with elaborate vouchers containing the order authorizing payment and the receipt of the payee. In the accounts for 1524, of Cristóbal de Medina, receiver of Valencia, he recites an order issued by the inquisitors to Pere Sorel, who was repairing the palace of the Inquisition, granting him an old chain which hung under some of the windows, and he includes Sorel's receipt for it. Similarly, in the Valencia accounts for 1759, we find the inquisitors issuing orders and receipts taken in the case of the charwoman, Josefa Serra, who was paid three libras for sweeping out the rooms from January 1st to St. John's Day, and five libras for carrying the seat of honor twice to the church of Santa Ana, and once to San Salvador. So with Juan Garcia, paid one libra ten sueldos for taking up and putting down the mats, and one libra four sueldos for two cords for the well. There was perhaps some excuse for dilatoriness in rendering accounts so elaborately minute, accompanied with the requisite orders and vouchers, but a more efficient reason was that the receiver was apt to be in arrears, using the funds for his own profit, in defiance of stringent regulations, and his account rendered was sure to be followed with a demand to pay a balance due. Ferdinand, as we have seen, and after him the Suprema, labored vainly to secure promptitude and regularity. 
In 1560, it devised an elaborate plan for appointing an auditor for every two tribunals, with a salary of 40,000 maravedis, for which he was to spend alternate years in examining their several accounts. Collusion between him and the receivers was guarded against by severe penalties for paying his salary except on orders from the Suprema and threats of prosecuting him for neglect of duty. When a balance was struck, the receiver was to deposit it within nine days in the coffer of the tribunal, and furnish the Suprema with evidence of the fact within nine days more. If he failed in this, the inquisitors were to imprison him under pain of forfeiting their salaries from that time forth. As each account was completed, the auditor was to forward a copy to the Suprema, and he was further to supervise the accounts of the collectors of the suppressed prebends, and to see that all receipts were duly deposited in the coffer. The scheme has interest from the insight which it gives into the disorder and dilapidation characteristic of inquisitorial finance, rather than from any improvement which it caused, for it seems to have proved impracticable. It is true that, in 1570, there were some additional instructions as to details, which look as if, after ten years, there was an effort to make it work, but it was soon afterwards abandoned, and, in 1572, there was a return to the old system by ordering from each tribunal an annual statement. This was followed by requiring a monthly report as to the management of property and the returns collected, but this seems to have received as little obedience as previous instructions. The memorial of 1623 to the Suprema urges strongly the enforcement of the instructions of 1560, that an auditor should, every year, audit the accounts of the treasurer in the presence of an inquisitor, under penalty of forfeiture of a year's salary by both. The statements thus rendered should then be examined by the fiscal of the Suprema, with the aid of an expert accountant, for, through the lack of this, in the previous accounts there have been great errors, and if they were reviewed by a shrewd examiner it would be discovered how large have been the losses. The writer evidently had little faith in the receivers-general and auditors-general on whom the Suprema depended, but his suggestions were not acted upon, and the Suprema contented itself with calling upon the dilatory treasurers for annual reports and occasionally getting their statements. The secret of the delay is indicated in instructions to the Valencia Tribunal in 1633 that, when Melchor de Mendoza, the treasurer, has finished the accounts which he has commenced, pressure must be brought to bear to make him pay the balance against him. The depositarios de los pretendientes, who had charge of the deposits of those seeking proofs of limpieza, emulated the treasurers. A letter of March 28, 1665, to the Barcelona Tribunal, calls attention to a carta acordada of January 16, 1620, ordering the accounts of the depositario to be included in the annual statements required for the auditor-general. The latter, however, reports that he has received none for many years, wherefore it is ordered that an itemized statement in detail, including everything since the last account rendered, shall be made out, showing what is due to all parties concerned. It may reasonably be doubted whether the command was obeyed. In 1713, orders were sent to Valencia that, if the depositario did not pay the balance in four months, 
pressure was to be brought to bear upon him, and the secretaries were to be forced to pay him what they owed him. The pressure was unavailing, for a prolonged correspondence ensued on the subject throughout 1714. Towards the close of the century, however, we find the Depositario of Valencia rendering statements with some degree of regularity every two years. If the accounts of the tribunals are thus carelessly kept, those of the Suprema would appear to be equally disordered. At least such conclusion is justified when, in 1685, we find it asking the tribunal of Valencia for a statement of the remittances which it had made to the treasurer-general. In 1695, the request is repeated for the years 1693 and 1694, and again in 1714, 1715, and 1726, all of which would argue most slovenly bookkeeping. Towards the close of its career, apparently, the Inquisition had succeeded in establishing a more methodical system. In 1803, Barcelona is rendering monthly statements of receipts and expenditures with commendable regularity, and we may attribute to the political perturbations the fact that the accounts of Valencia for the years 1807, 1809, and 1810 were not audited by the Suprema until 1816. Confidence in the integrity of the average receiver was evidently neither felt nor deserved, and at an early period the device was adopted of the Arca de Tres Llaves, a coffer placed in the secreto, with three locks of which the keys were held by the receiver, by an inquisitor, and by the scrivener of sequestrations, so that it could be opened only in the presence of all three. In this repository the receiver was required to place all monies coming into his hands, and so it remained until the last, as a fine example of archaic simplicity. To this there were occasional variations, such as requiring two areas, one for confiscations and one for fines and penances, or, when the tribunals were living on their incomes, one for capital and the other for revenue. As a rule, however, one sufficed, and it was customarily divided into two compartments, for confiscations and fines and penances, respectively. The rules prescribed, in 1514, by Inquisitor General Mersader, indicate the precautions regarded as necessary to reduce to a minimum the temptations of the receiver. He was to receive no money, save in presence of the scrivener of sequestrations or of the secreto. All collections were to be placed in the coffer within three days of their receipt, in the presence of an inquisitor and of a scrivener. When subordinates brought funds from other places, they were to be delivered to him within two days, in presence of a scrivener, and he was required to deposit them within twenty-four hours. Fraud and deceit, Mersadeir says, must cease in the collection and sales of confiscations, and in depositing and taking out monies from the coffer. All expenses, ordinary and extraordinary, were to be paid with money taken from the coffer. The scrivener must, with his own hands, keep duplicate books, with dated entries, of all deposits and withdrawals, one copy to be kept in his possession, and the other in the coffer. No monies must be taken out for loans or other purpose, save the expenses of the tribunals, without the express license of the king and inquisitor-general. Every two months the receiver and scrivener, in presence of an inquisitor, 
must verify the accounts and the money on hand, and must send a written statement of the latter to the inquisitor-general. Any omission or deviation from this, by receiver, inquisitor, or scrivener, was punishable with excommunication and a fine of five hundred ducats. All the officials concerned were to be furnished with copies of these instructions, and one was to be placed in the coffer. It was one thing to frame precise regulations, and another to secure their observance. These instructions were sent to Sicily in 1515, but evasions were speedily invented, for already in 1516 a letter of the Suprema asserts that experience had shown that the custodians of the three keys, by lending them to each other, committed frauds on the monies in the coffer. To prevent this, it devised wholly inefficient regulations as to the parties to whom the keys should be confided in the absence of the regular custodians, so that, as it naively remarked, no frauds may be committed in the future. It argues a singularly hopeful spirit in the Suprema if it expected that such precautions would preclude embezzlement, when the standard of official morality was so low that malversation was prevalent everywhere and was rarely if ever punished by dismissal from office. How tenderly such indiscretions were treated is manifested in a case occurring in Barcelona in 1514. Francisco de San Clement owed 186 libras to the confiscated estate of Bernardo and Dionis Venet. His father paid 150 on account, but this was not credited, being evidently embezzled, and on June 13th Ferdinand ordered the receiver, Mateo de Morano, not to press the suit against San Clement on account of the damage it would inflict on the honor of the officials. The matter was to be hushed up in order to spare the reputation of the tribunal. When theft was thus condoned, we need not wonder at the condition of the receptoria of Saragossa, characterized by fraud, disorder, and neglect, as described by the auditor Anton Navarro, in a letter which Ferdinand gave, in 1515, to the archdeacon of Almasan, when sending him thither as inspector. Allusion has been made above to the remedies sought by Jiménez in 1517 by sending an auditor-general to inspect all the tribunals and ascertain the balances due. It was probably in consequence of this that Juan Martínez de Guilestegui, the former receiver of Toledo, was found indebted in the sum of 51,500 maravedis, but there was no thought of punishing him, and, with customary tenderness, Charles V forgave him half of the debt, and promised that on payment of this he should be free of all further claim. Apparently it was a matter of course that receivers should be in debt to the fisc, although, if the rules as to the three-keyed coffer were observed, there was no opportunity for them to be in arrears. The rules, in fact, were disregarded with impunity. Inquisitor-General Manrique, writing to Sicily in 1525, says that they had not been observed for several years, and orders them to be enforced under the prescribed penalties. But as he did not inflict those penalties for past disobedience, his threats were a mere brutum fulmen. The consequence of this condonation of malpractice appears wherever there is opportunity of investigation. One of Ferdinand's most trusted receivers was Amador de Aliaga of Valencia. On his death, about 1529, when concealment was no longer possible, he was found to be a defaulter, and as one of the inquisitors was his heir, 
the Suprema ordered him to make good the deficit out of the estate. Then Pedro Sorel, a notary of the Secreto, was in the enjoyment of certain confiscated houses granted to him by Ferdinand, subject to a censo of 2,975 sueldos. This had clandestinely been paid out of the funds of the tribunal. Sorel refused restitution, and the Suprema merely told the inquisitors to persuade him to refund the amount without a suit. This same Sorel had covertly, through a third party, purchased a censo of eight thousand sueldos, particularly well secured, sold by the fisc in order to pay salaries. The Suprema rebuked the tribunal for parting with so choice an investment, but there was no talk of dismissing or punishing the guilty notary. When the officials enriched themselves with impunity, it is not difficult to understand the incessant complaints of the poverty of the tribunals. That a receiver was expected to use the money in his hands, and to be in arrears, is indicated by a letter of the Suprema, in 1542, on learning the death of Ramon de Esparza, receiver of Majorca. He had not sent in his accounts, and the inquisitor was empowered to compel his heirs to render a statement, and to pay whatever balance might be found due. The device of the coffer had fallen evidently into complete neglect, and the Suprema endeavored to resuscitate it by a carta acordada of December 9, 1545, which prescribed that all collections were to be deposited within three days of receipt, if made in the city, or within four days if made in the country, and salaries and other expenses were to be paid only from the money in the coffer, under pain of excommunication, latte sententiae, and of ten ducats for each infraction. This was the commencement of an endless series of legislation, reiterating or modifying the regulations in a manner to indicate how impossible it was to enforce observance. The delay allowed for deposit was increased from three days to ten. Receivers were required to take an oath to obey. Reports of all deposits and withdrawals were ordered to be rendered every four months. These constant repetitions are the measure of their inefficiency, and the hardened indifference of the receivers is evidenced by a complaint of Reynoso, Inquisitor of Toledo, in 1556, that since the accounts of the receiver had been balanced, he had received large sums which he refused to deposit in the coffer, saying that his accounts had been settled. Then, in 1560, the order of 1545 was reissued, with instructions that, in case of infraction, the receiver was to be prosecuted and punished, evidence of which was to be furnished to the Suprema. It was all in vain, and the receivers continued to hold their collections at their convenience. In 1569, with the object of reducing to some kind of order the finances of the tribunals, a junta de hacienda, or finance committee, was constituted in each, consisting of the inquisitors, the judge of confiscations, the receiver, and the notary of sequestrations, which was to meet on the last day of each month and consider all questions of property and income, deciding them by a majority vote. This, with occasional modifications, remained a standing feature of the tribunals, although the repeated exhortations and commands that the sessions be held regularly show how difficult it was to secure business-like action and management. The attempt was made to utilize this organization in compelling the receivers to deposit their collections in the coffers. 
In 1576, and again in 1579, orders were issued that, at the monthly meetings, the receiver should declare, under oath and under excommunication, the amount of money in his hands, what he had collected, and what placed in the coffer. This was ineffectual, and then it was tried to compel the notary of sequestrations to make a declaration that the receiver had deposited all that he admitted to have received. Then, in 1584, a concession was made allowing the receiver to make his deposits monthly, which of course only increased the risk of defalcations. This was followed, in 1586, by orders that he must be compelled to collect and deposit promptly the revenues of the prebends, and that, at the monthly meetings, the schedule of income was to be examined in order to see what had been collected and deposited. It would be wearisome to pursue further these details, which continued indefinitely, with perpetual and ineffectual iteration, to compel the receivers to hand over their collections without delay. It hardly needs the assertion of the memorial of 1623 that the coffer was used in but very few places as a depository for the funds of the tribunals. The writer adds that the receivers thus incur excommunication and commit perjury monthly. The finances suffer great losses, and the receivers are ruined by squandering the money, but the only remedy that he can suggest is that the penalties be increased and strict orders be issued that, under no pretext, should funds be left outside of the coffers. These expedients had been abundantly tried, but in the absence of rigid discipline and of punishment of offenders, they had been and continued to be fruitless. Another and most serious omission pointed out was that in many tribunals there was no libro becerro, or register of property, with descriptions and titles, the lack of which led to great losses and much difficulty in making collections. The cause of the poverty complained of is not far to seek. Under the flagrant disregard of the prescribed safeguards, it is not surprising that defalcations were by no means infrequent. The general negligence and the tenderness manifested to official malfeasance facilitated and encouraged embezzlement. It could be concealed by skillfully falsified statements, but when a receiver died, his estate was not uncommonly found to be indebted to the fisc. Thus, in the account of Lasado del Mar of Valencia, in 1647, there is an item of 372 libras, 14 sueldos, two ducats, still due by the heirs of the late receiver, Minuarte, although 2,400 libras had already been collected of them during the previous five or six years. So when, in 1664, Juan Mathieu, receiver of Barcelona, was murdered and his accounts were finally reduced to order in 1666, they were found to be short in the large sum of 47,359 libras, one swell though. The widow petitioned to be released, or at least to have an abatement, which was refused, but she was given two years in which to settle. A somewhat typical antemortem case was that of Carlos Albornoz, receiver of Valencia, who, it may be remembered, endeavored in 1713 to secure the reversion of his office for his son, aged twelve, and a few years later succeeded in so doing. There was trouble in getting him to render his accounts for 1723 and three or four subsequent years, 
and making him pay over the tolerably large confiscations of all our sown in Macanas. In seventeen twenty seven he was allowed to resign in favor of his son, and in seventeen twenty eight active measures were taken to compel him to furnish his accounts and make payments, which resulted in obtaining six thousand reales and a statement. On this, in December seventeen twenty eight, the auditor general found a balance against him of six thousand two hundred forty eight libras, ten sueldos, one ducat, besides sums paid by the towns of Villanueva de Castellon and Denia, which were not entered in his books. Then commenced the attempt to effect a settlement, which continued until 1734, with more or less success, his son being meanwhile continued in office, while in the whole voluminous correspondence there is no intimation of any thought of punishing him for his inveterate disobedience and dishonesty. The confiscations, in fact, seemed to carry with them an infection. The licentiate Vicente Vidal was administer of the Valencia portion of the estate of Macanas, and, on settlement of his accounts, he was found to be in debt some eighteen hundred libras. The administration was transferred to Manuel Molner, to whom he gave a deed for a property renting for one hundred libras. In 1729 he paid his debt, and then, in 1732, he had the effrontery to ask the Suprema to refund to him the rents received from his property while in Molnar's hands. While thus much of the chronic complaint of indigence may reasonably be attributed to mismanagement and peculation, it would be unjust to the Inquisition to ascribe to it a specially bad eminence in this respect. It was probably neither better nor worse than the other departments of the government. Neglect of duty and misappropriation of funds, common enough to this day in public affairs, were in past times rather the rule than the exception, and flourished in Spain perhaps to a greater extent than elsewhere. Multiplication of offices and inadequate salaries are direct incentives to irregular gains, and the practical immunity of offenders, caused by the unwise effort to preserve the external reputation of the holy office, was an encouragement which could not fail to induce slovenly service, disobedience of rules, and frequent embezzlement. End of Book 5, Chapter 5, Part 2